I would go to sleep because I would drink myself to sleep. You know, I would just, and then drinking, going to sleep and passing out from alcohol is not what they would call good sleep. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Uh, good morning and welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. From our studio overlooking the Milwaukee River in downtown West Bend, we are going to stay here today and welcome into our studio our guest, Chris Swift. Chris was born in Milwaukee and grew up on the northwest side of town. He graduated from Milwaukee uh, Madison High School in 1993 and went to Carthage College. Um, At his first duty station in the military in 2000, he worked in the ER at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. He learned the skills that would help him in combat later, and he would go on to spend 55 months between Iraq and Afghanistan. After his completing his military service, he began working with the Captain John D. Mason Veteran Peer Support Program with the Medical College of Wisconsin. He has since become a certified peer specialist and takes his experiences to try and help those who need help. He also shares his story so that they don't follow in his poor choices. He found his purpose again in life because of the programs and work that he does now. So let's go and welcome our guest, Chris Swift. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Believe me, it's our pleasure. Uh, we were speaking a little bit before we got started here, and I had to stop you because it was so good I wanted to record it. So let, let, let's start, start out, Chris. Just give us a real quick uh, who Chris Swift is when he was growing up on the northwest side of Milwaukee. I was youngest, so my dad was married before. He had six children, so I had um, stepbrothers and sisters. Um, we We weren't very close with them, but my mom and my brother had, or my mom and my dad had my brother and myself. Uh, my brother's five years older than me, but growing up, all I ever wanted to do was be my brother. Like he was, he was that guy who was good at everything and everything he did. Like he went to school, he went to Car- uh, Custer High School, which is now Barack Obama High School. But he was his freshman year. He pl- he was a starter on the baseball team, a starter on the football team. If he would have played basketball, he would have been a starter there. Like he was my hero growing up. My dad, he was a he was a hard worker. He's an iron worker. Um, that's pretty tough work. His last job actually was Miller Park. I still can't call it AmFam Stadium, but he was there. Um, fortunately, he wasn't there the day that the um, situation with Big Blue fell. But I always looked at my dad. He always 
showed us that hard work was the way to go. You know, he grew up, he was one of 11. So it was tough for him when he grew up. Um, my parents have been married 47 years now. That's a, you know, now in this day and age, it's you know, the only time you get to 47 years is if you have like four marriages and you add them all together, you know, so that they showed us the uh, importance of family. We're real close. Our family is during my time in the military, my relationships kind of got, I didn't get to spend as much time as I liked because I was either on leave and I had to see so many people in a short period of time. So, but before you get to your family in the military, let me just ask you, your brother was your idol as you oh, grew up in God, all yeah. the sports? Oh, uh, everything, everything he did. Should, like if he would ask you if you played sports or did you just watch your brother? Oh, no, play? no. I played sports. I played softball in, in elementary school. Then I played one year of little league, but I didn't really, I loved watching baseball, but I just didn't like playing it. But then I played football and I loved playing football and I always wanted to play quarterback, but I always had to play offensive line or defensive line or, or tight end. You know, I never got to play quarterback even in high school because my brother was a quarterback. So I thought, of course, that's the greatest thing, greatest position in the world. No question about it. Yeah. So now you're getting ready to uh, join the military and tell us what was the inspiration for joining and what were your expectations when you joined? Uh, so when I joined the military, it was, I, I, I needed to do something else because school I didn't really like, and I wasn't being successful as I should have been in school. And I was bartending. So I was out, I was working late night. So I'd get home at three, four o'clock in the morning and trying to go to school at eight o'clock in the morning, never really flowed very well. So I was like, I need to do something else. So a good friend of mine, her husband was a recruiter. And she goes, Swifty, you'll love active duty military. You will absolutely love it. And I'm like, uh, all right, I'll give it a shot. So we go into the recruiter, the recruiting station. I know her husband, so I'm talking to him. And he's like, here's this guy, Sergeant First Class Buchanan. He is going to be the guy that gets you into the military. I'm like, all right, my only deal is I'm either going to do linguist, intel, or medic. Those are the only three jobs I'm doing. So we go they pull up on the computer. They try to get me to be an air traffic controller. I'm like, I'm doing one of three jobs. They're like, all right, we'll check another one. And then they, they, they just keep going. And I'm like, look, fellas, I am doing one of these three jobs. That's it. Then like three jobs later, medic comes up. They go, all right, you want to be a medic? I'm like, yes, let's do this. So I get to school in Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And while there, I'm like, you know, some of this is, is interesting. It's cool, but we're like, we're just doing the didactic part of it. We're just doing the learning stuff. We're not doing any skills yet. So I'm kind of like, oh, am, I don't know if I'm going to like it, you know. So finally, we start doing skills. I start liking it a little more and a little more. And then school's over, so I get sent to my first duty station, Fort Letterwood, Missouri. The funny thing is they're reading off everybody's duty station, and they're like, oh, man, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. And they're going to like, oh, I feel bad for this guy. Swift, you're going to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. The only one out of like 140 people, I go to Fort Leonardwood. Well, obviously, I'm a big, I, I don't have a lot of faith when it comes to spirituality, like religion and stuff like that, but I believe that things happen for a reason, and I'm very, uh, I have a very strong belief with that. So I get to Fort Leonardwood, and they put me at the TMC, the Troop Medical Clinic. So we're taking care of all the trainees that are coming, all the basic trainees, and then um, they have like the, NBC there, they have the engineers, they have the drivers. So they've got plenty of plenty of trainees on on the post. It's like 20,000 trainees. So 
as I'm working, I have a couple of PAs that kind of help me through learning learning the skill as as a medic because you don't really learn that much at school. You always learn it when you go to your duty stations. Then I talked to my NCIC and I said, I want to go to the ER. So I go to the go to the ER and I get there and like the first week I'm there, I'm like, holy shit, what did I do? What did I get myself into? Am I really ready for this? Lucky for me. When you say, am I ready for this? What were you seeing that you were not ready for? Like there were like people that were really injured. So we were the only hospital for like 50 miles. So everything right around the post takes everything. And it's a very rural area. So you have snake bites. And then, (laughs) which this cracks me up because I'm a city boy. And we had a guy who got bit by a copperhead. So he comes in. Well, he brings the copperhead with him. So I'm not a fan of snakes. So I'm like, all right, I can't do that. But we we took people. So all the accidents within a 50, probably 70-mile radius. And we take we take all of them, you know. A lot of times we had to we had to fly people, so we had the helipad. We had to learn how to transport patients from the ER out to the helipad, get them onto the get them out of the chopper so they could get out of there. So this was going from I didn't feel like I learned a lot in school, and then I went to the TMC, which has your your coughs, your twisted ankles, your you know your your minor cuts. So it's nothing too big. And then I go to the ER, even though this was a level three ER, and level three that means that. It's like your ER is open 24-7, and then everybody else is 9 to 5, and then they're on call. So if we need somebody to come in, we call them in. But I was very lucky. I had a great preceptor. His name is Jake Ukas. He was just a great, great guy. I had a great shift leader. Um, his name was Jeffrey Counts. And then I had a great mentor who was a PA who was a uh, special forces medic in Vietnam. And this guy, his name was Mike Redman. He was unbelievable. The amount of stuff that he teach, like if you wanted to learn, he would teach you everything. And he was so good. Just to give you an idea. So we're smack dab in the middle of Missouri. We get a phone call from a gentleman. One of the nurses answers, says, how can I help you? The gentleman goes, is Red working today? And she's like, no. She's like, well, when is Red going to be there? Well, he'll be here tomorrow. Is there something we can help you with? And the guy's like, well, I'm having chest pains, and I just want to see red. She's like, well, why don't you come into the ER? He goes, well, I live in Arkansas. So this guy lives four hours away, and he only wants to see red. With chest pains. With chest pains. (laughs) So the next day, this guy comes and drives himself in. So he had a heart attack, but he waited because he only wanted to see red. My goodness, yeah. That's just... A tip of the iceberg of when you talk to Red, like we talk about Red still to this day, like my friends and I that that got to experience him, he was, they should have made movies about him. Like that's how good this guy is. He was, he was very funny, just the, like he was, he was just Red and that's what everybody had said. Like no matter what he did, like he, this guy could walk on water. Like he, him and Jesus could walk on water together. He was unbelievable. I thank God that I ran into him and when I went to Fort Letterwood because I'm like, I'm the only one. I'd like 140. That has to go there. I'm like, this can't be good. So eventually I realized that, oh, I was put here to be around him, you know, and 
Then I ended up getting orders to Germany. So I got orders, Germany, 2-6 Infantry and Bombholder, Germany. So Bombholder is the southwest part of Germany. Um, they call it the Rock. It's, it's a pretty desolate area. There's not a lot around Bombholder. They're actually now Bombholder is closed. So it's been closed for a little while. They used it when the Ebola scare was going. They sent a humanitarian missions up to Northern Africa. Anybody who got contracted, or was around somebody who had Ebola, they had to go to bomb holder. So that tells you what the military thinks of bomb holder. <laughs> so I go from Fort Leonard Wood, which is not, nobody's knocking doors down to get to Fort Leonard Wood or bomb holder for that matter. But it was in Germany. So we got a lot of, a lot of great experiences there. Um, but now, now, before we go on, Chris, I just want to stop and ask you this question. When you entered the military, what did your mom think? What did your dad think? How was your family supported? Your brother, who was your idol, what did they think of um, They Actually, so my dad was in the military, and some of his brothers were in. Um, so he was, he was good with it. My mom was good with it. But this is also 2000. So this is pre-9-11. Pre-9-11. You know, so they're like, oh, all right, that's, that's good that you're doing this. You know, maybe this will help you find your direction. So one, when 9-11 happened, that's my mom didn't really understand what was going to happen. Like my dad, had, having been in the military, having a little experience with it, and his brothers have been in the military, and then I have multiple cousins who are in the military. They knew what, the, what was going to happen. They knew what, and you know, my brother, he, he's pretty savvy, so he knew, he knew something was going to come out of it eventually. Well, then we started going over to, we, we started the plans to go over to Iraq. So I'm in Germany. We're going over there. And, um, you know, you really don't understand until the bullets start flying. Then you're like, oh, okay, this is what it's about. Yeah, let's stop that. that I think that's a very, very important point. So are, are you leaving from the beautiful city of Baumhalter to, to go into to Iraq? But when you leave, there is that moment where you recognize you've been in training and all of a sudden something clicks in your head. This is the real thing. Now we're, this is dangerous. I could be hurt. I could be killed. Now we're at war. Do you remember that moment? And oh, yeah. Well, you crossed the border from Kuwait to, uh, to Iraq. And it was like, so we're on, at that point, we're on a five ton, which, you know. Large truck. Yeah. So I don't even know if they have five tons or deuce and a halfs anymore. I mean, everything's all up armor. So we're driving that. We're pulling a uh, a trailer. It has some water on it. Then some kids start jumping up on the back trying to take stuff off of our uh, um, trailer. So we're like, oh, all right, this this ain't so bad, you know. But it was like initially when we when we crossed that we could see signs that they had. We knew we were in Iraq, so we're like, all right, this is game time. And, so we, and what year are we now? Ah, uh, two thousand three. So you're right, right the first wave. Yeah, and then we ended up in Talil Air Base in in uh, Nazaria. So Cedars, it's like a it's an Air Force base. So we were there. Hundred and first was there. Um, we helped. They they set up the they had a fixed facility for a hospital, so people got flown in there, and we would help them. So like we would also take care of EPWs, the enemy prisoners of war. So, um, like we have to follow the Geneva Convention, so we take care of everybody. So like to give you an example, if somebody would attack us, and we would shoot him, I might have to do do first aid on him, you know. So. Because we're the only ones that follow 
the Geneva Convention. Because, like, if the enemies come after us and shoot us, they're not going to be like, hey, medic, go, go fix him up. It's, it's, not, it's not like that. Let me ask you this, because this is an excellent point for, uh, to ask a, a combat medic. You are given that. But there's more than a Geneva Convention when you see something, somebody wounded, isn't there? I mean, isn't there more of an inspiration? Well, I'll help him. Uh, yeah, you, you, you need to. Um, it's one of those. So it's like the ethical part of it. It that that comes into play, but also it's it's ultimately the right thing to do. And then I was a senior medic, so if other guys see me do the right thing, then they're going to do the right thing. And then we don't have to worry about people getting caught up in any, any bad things and any war crimes. Controversies. Be- yeah. Because then like, that's the worst thing, you know, you're there, you have an opportunity to do the right thing. You don't do the right thing. And then you get in trouble. And not only do you get in trouble, but everybody else around you. So now you're under the microscope. So everything you do is going to be, micromanaged from now on and that's where the geneva convention comes into play (laughs) yeah but it's it and then we have to carry our geneva convention card and have it with us so it's like our id card our dog tags we have to have that on us all times so we're there for uh, two and a half months um this was uh, we we had a a phone but it worked 10% 10% of the time. So like I didn't call home for like 30 days. So of course hearing what's on the news and my, my family's like, Oh, what's going on? We're not hearing from him. So like in the beginning, there was not a lot of stuff. There was not a lot. The internet wasn't there. Like now, if you go to uh, Afghanistan, everywhere you go is going to have a PX. It's going to have internet. It's going to have all this stuff. Phones. People had cell phones. Like when I, my last duty station in, uh, um, Afghanistan. When I did Afghanistan, um, I actually had a cell phone, so I could call home. And I, you know, it was it was one of those things that I can't believe I'm at war and I have a cell phone. You know, <laughs> you can call home anytime. Yeah, but but like, you're still in you're still in Iraq right yep, now. Yeah, till 2003. We're going. We really haven't done anything that I'm thinking we're really doing anything good for you know. We're getting into the firefights and stuff like that. But I was with the infantry, and it was like, if you ever want to go to war, you want to go with the infantry. Like, they are so good at what they do. Like, you see, like, they talk about the SWAT teams in here and our local law enforcement and stuff like that. But the infantry, they are so good at what they do. It, it's, it's amazing how how good they are that muscle memory they can do it they can shoot they can move they they can do everything so i mean i felt like after that initial going over the border when you get that oh shit i'm at war but you're with those guys so it makes it a lot easier and then when you have to treat somebody you know that they're going to do everything they can to make sure you're okay because you're making sure they're okay so so you're really at the front lines where you're Job yeah, we were the as, flat, the forward line of troops. Right, but your job as a combat medic, you're, you're into it. This is significant. This is where I need to be, where the guys need me if they get wounded. Yeah, this is where being around Red and learning all and, and being a sponge with him, it's like I, I, I cannot imagine my life as a medic without Red. Like he, he is probably the most significant person in my job as a medic, like it's not even close. He's just without him. I would not have, I, and I don't want to say like I was successful in the military, 
or successful in the in in combat, but I knew a lot of things and I was able to do a lot of things and I was confident in doing a lot of things because I learned from somebody who was very good at what they did and somebody who had been there and somebody who had been there, right. you know, and that's like when we got back from our deployment. The first people that welcomed us home were the Vietnam vets. And that was a hard thing for me because I knew that when Vietnam vets came home, like they didn't want anybody to see that they came home. Like Vietnam vets made sure we never came home to that. And that's like, that's a thank you to you. That's thank you to Red and all the other people, all the other Vietnam vets that took time out of their schedule and were like, we're not going to have that same, we're not going to have history repeat itself when they get back. And we came back and, a lot of times they everybody was treated as a hero. Like the 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 only problem I had with that is not everybody's not a hero. Just because you put on the uniform and you go over there does not make that does not define you as a hero. Hero by definition is doing what somebody else will not do. But but, but let's try and clear that up a little bit and I'll tell you why. When you had that experience of crossing into Iraq and for the first time you realized this is the war zone. That is the experience people at home will never know. And when, they, when you cross, that's where they think you become the hero by participating in a war. So it's not like we're all John Waynes. But Correct. I, but I think there is something to that heroic thing because you have made that step from the safety of your training into the safety or, or into the danger of this is real and the bullets are flying, as you said. Yeah. Um, I look at hero as a much more larger part of what, you know, our platoon, our battalion, or our platoon, our company, our battalion, you know, we did certain things and everything. And there were people that did things that were far above and beyond. And that's what I'm trying to say. Not like those guys are in the hero category. We are in the participation, participation part of it. We are speaking with uh, Chris Swift, and I've known Chris for quite a while. And I didn't know they called you Swifty. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great nickname. But Chris uh, yeah. has uh, been a combat medic, and right now he's just coming back from his first tour in Iraq. So we're, what year, Chris? Uh, 04. 04. July 20th of 04. So we get back. Um, I have a wedding to go to. One of my cousins is getting married in September, so I asked to not be not go on leave right away because everybody came home and um, you get 30 days of leave when you when you get done with your deployment. So you have the nine days or eight and a half days of reintegration training where in Germany they give you all these classes. Now that you're home, you know, you got to slowly get back into the life because your family was alone for the last 15 months. You know, I was single. So like that didn't affect me very much. Uh, but there are families, you know, like the mom was in charge for the last 15 months taking care of it. So you got to they tell you, you got to slowly get back into the family thing. You can't just walk in the door and go, all right, rules are going to change because for 15 months you were doing this. Now it's, you know, it's not going to work that way now. So they give you that. They talk about um, mental health. And, and it's weird because there they were like, all right, if you say that you are having mental health issues, you're going to have to go talk to that person for four hours. So everybody's like, nope, I'm fine. And, you know, nobody, like, we got home. We wanted to just do our reintegration so we could go out, drink, party, eat good food. Like, it was nice. We could just go to the PX and go buy a Coca-Cola. You know, you, t you take that for granted, and then you're gone for 15 months, and it's like, 
man, this is cool. I can just buy a Coke anytime I want, you know, and it's the small things that you learn to appreciate when you get back, you know, because you don't have those things. And then in the beginning, you know, they didn't really have the internet cafes. They had some, they had phone places that we could call, but you had to buy the, the phone cards and stuff like that. So we were able to communicate back home. You know, I always had a thing. I would call my parents on Sundays and holidays, you know, so they knew um, that I would call then. But if we had somebody who uh, was killed in combat, killed in action, they would black out the phones. We couldn't use them. We couldn't do any kind of communication back home until the family of the individual that was killed was their family was notified. So we had to wait. So sometimes my parents didn't understand that, but towards the end of my deploying career, they were fully aware if I didn't call on a Sunday, something bad had happened where I couldn't call. So, so now you're home from your, your first deployment. How yep. long do you stay before you are sent back on your second deployment? 15 months. So we got back in July and we left the November 7th. So 2005, no. Yep. Yeah. 2005, November 7, 2005, November 7, 2006. Is your second deployment? Yep. To? Iraq. Iraq. Yep. So in here, we spent our time, we get to Camp Bering in Iraq, in uh, Kuwait. We do some training. We do some train up and stuff, get us ready. So then from there, we go up and we are at Fob Falcon, which is just outside of Biop, the Baghdad International mm-hmm. Airport. So we are running missions out of there and it's, you know, we know our, we know our area. We're getting real comfortable kind of going through it. And we had two guys in our battalion were killed by an IED. They just went up and they went to check it and it went off and both of them were killed instantly there. So that was April 1st, 2005 or 2006. Sorry. And so we go to the memorial. This is one of the things that, like, I, I can appreciate going to the memorial. You know, I was friends with, with both the guys, Clay and Devorah. And when you go there, it always seems like there's people that talk at these memorials that never even knew these guys. They know their names. They said, oh, well, they were great soldiers, this and that. And I'm like, but you can't tell us anything about them. Why are you talking? Why can't one of the guys talk? Why, why, I, I will never understand why the military thinks they need to have VIPs talk at a memorial. Like, if I were to be killed, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want no VIP who didn't know who I am. You know, I'd want somebody who was like with me and we're like, all right, well, Swifty did this or Swifty did that. You know, Swifty was from Wisconsin. He loved the Packers, Bucks, and Brewers. You know, <laughs> there's no, and you know, this is the perfect year to be here in Wisconsin with the Bucks winning it all, the Brewers being awesome, and the Packers are going to be awesome again too. <laughs> so we're we're there, and then we go through that, and so one of them, one of my uh, mentees, he was he was the medic for that, and it took him a while to get over the fact. I was like, there's no matter what you do, there's going to be some things you cannot change. So when these two guys are blown up, I mean, you cannot do anything like you have to accept that no matter how hard you try or how bad you want to you can't bring people back you know as a medic you think like I I was very cocky and I you know I was good at what I did but I was a little cocky and a little arrogant at times but once again red taught me and red made me be very efficient at what I did 
but this guy Cuevas, he he struggled a little bit. So like we went to the Starbucks of the Middle East. That would be green beans coffee. So like that that was our Starbucks. So we would go probably every every few days. We'd go and we kind of talk about it. And it took him a couple of months, but he realized he goes, you know, I can't I can't save everybody. I go, that's right. You know, you don't we we don't have that God power. We're like, all right, boom, you're back to life. So that took me, I learned that in the ER that you're not going to save everybody because we had people coming in, you know, um, when I was in the ER, I saw people die from age four all the way up to like 101. So a wide variety, but once again, even red couldn't save them. And red in my eyes was God. But, but let's, let's, uh, let me ask you this, Chris, is there a difference between the emergency room in a hospital in central Missouri and a battlefield? Oh, and, and what I, the reason I'm asking that you're, you're referring to this other medic who is with you. Yeah. Are you aware of the fact that you're emotionally numbing yourself? Are you starting to, to numb yourself that you may not realize it, but you have to start numbing yourself just to continue because you don't know if this is going to happen in 20 minutes from now. Yeah, you, you don't have the opportunity to just say, all right, this is going to take me out of battle for three months. You get 30 seconds to, you know, you get a very short time. You're like, all right, you know. So Cuevas eventually got it. Um, you know, it's still he still struggles with it that those guys died. But I'm like, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can play it back a million times, and the result is still the same. And the war goes on. And the war goes on. Yeah, it just keeps moving forward. It's not like, all right, hold on. Yeah. They need a timeout. Yeah, let's stop and let's, cry about this. No, yeah. there's no time to stop and cry. Yeah, well, so that'll get me to my next one. So on May 25th, 2006, our company commander and his gunner were killed by an EFP. It's an explosively formed projectile. Goes in, it, it shoots into the side. It it this copper shape charge just spins and it just goes right through the door and it implodes. It blows everything out. So he was probably one of the best peer leaders I had ever been around. And this guy was he was just he was just it. So like Red was my medical hero, my medical idol, and then Captain Doug DeCenzo, he was, like, his leadership was second to none. Like, he knew everybody in our company. He knew your family. He knew your na the names of the family members, the kids, the wife, all that stuff. And it's like, he was just unbelievable. And then when he died, we, they had to come and, you know, we put the bag, put him in the body bags, him and, and Robert Blair, and well, we had to take him back with us, and um, that one, that one hit a lot of us hard. And then we had to go out six hours later, so we go see probably our worst experience up to that point in the in the uh, in the war in Iraq. And six hours later, we were we were on mission. Yeah, that war doesn't stop. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. They're like, you know. Here, when you're at the hospital and somebody dies, you have a little time to decompress. You know, I worked in the ER in Grafton for six years, and, you know, you you have time for the family to come in to pay their respects and, and all that. But in combat, you get them in the body bag, and you get a, and you, you make sure you secure everything you need to secure, and then you get out. Yeah. And even while you're putting them in the body bag, something could happen. You could well, oh, yeah, we have security. You, you are yeah. pulling... 360 yeah, security yeah. and 360, I mean, all around security. So your gunners are, you know, 
and everybody is so the emotion is high. So you've got to you've got to maintain your 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 emotions so you don't get too crazy. Because if somebody just gets pissed off and they just want to start shooting a fifty cal into a building, you're going to destroy a lot of stuff. And there was a lot of people around watching, and you know, you start doing that, you start mowing down a whole whole city. That's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for you, but it's also taking the place of not being able to mourn. It's not yeah. being able, as you would at a funeral, you say the family comes and they cry and they all have, there's, there is no such thing here. There is no mourning. There is no, there is no feeling at all. You stay staying hypervigilant to the mission. Yeah. And then like we have the memorial, but that's the, that's a, a 30 minute memorial. And then it's, you know, you're back on mission. You're hypervigilant. Yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, you're like, we're going to get them back. We got to get revenge. And when you start getting that playing in, you start losing the skills that you have learned to make you successful in a combat environment. Because when your emotions start taking off and they start taking away from your muscle memory and the things that you know how to do and that you're very good at doing, anything that can make that step back is a bad situation. You gotta, you've got to, you got to, numb your emotions you have to you have to numb your emotions but i I think this is a very very important part chris it's not simply that you are getting personal about this now you're taking it personal but now you're getting away from the mission this is no longer the mission that the military's given you now the mission is we're in this to save ourselves to stay alive and we're pissed off and now it's personal that's a different war yep and and when you get caught up in that and it's you know Anytime your guys are getting getting killed or getting hurt, you're. It's like I, I look at it as like a big brother going. Your little brother got got beat up at school, so you're going to go get the guys that did it. You know that's probably one of the better ways I can explain it. It's not even. It's not close on any level, but it's the best way that I can describe. Like your little brother gets beat up, so you go beat up them. I think you it's know? a good example. Yeah. So. Um, we go through this. So now our company commander, who we all loved, and I'm talking loved, this guy was amazing. So then we get a an officer that comes in that's probably one of the worst leaders I ever I ever had. So in his defense, nobody would have would have replaced Captain Desenzo. Nobody, like God Himself, could have came down and still would have been secondary to Captain Desenzo. It's just he was. He was that special. Um, then we get Captain McKay. He comes and he runs things a lot different. And it's just it, no matter what he would have done, it wouldn't have been good. Then we get, for whatever reason, we lost our company commander and we got a new company commander. And now they're like, oh, we're going to switch out your first sergeant. So our first sergeant was the one thing that was kind of holding everything together with the new commander. And they're like, well, we're going to switch him out too. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like our command team, our first sergeant and commander were awesome. First sergeant Cotto, Captain Senzo, they were awesome. People wanted to, people were asking to leave their companies to come to our company because our command structure was awesome. You know, and then we get Captain McKay and then we get another first sergeant who they were just, they just, they would have never lived up to our expectations, even if they were amazing. So they kind of went into a rough spot, but I think they could have done a lot better. 
They could have looked at the NCOs, the ones that were there, that are seasoned seasoned combat veterans, you know, that have been in a lot of lot of shit storms. So that didn't happen. So we go through and just everybody is just angry and frustrated and you know, there was there was drug use, you know, because your interpreters can come and they can get stuff from the uh um the locals. Always a supply line. Yep, there's always a supply line. But I will say this, our interpreters, that second deployment, were awesome. Like, those guys were, they knew stuff. Like, we were in a firefight once, and one of the guys just went and sat next to the wall. We're like, what are you doing? Get in the vehicle. Like, he took his helmet off. He's like, no, you guys got, you guys are good. And it's like, I don't care how good you think we are. Like, you need to put your stuff on because... If any stray bullets come, but our interpreters were really good. They were they were very they were they knew everything that was going on. They understood what we were doing. They understood what you know what our mission was, and they were they were helping us to accomplish it. They were very good at getting information out. Um, did you trust them? Oh, we did trust them, which is extremely important to trust people on the battlefield. Yep, and then we lost. One rec- one of them, and then our our uh, company commander brought this guy on, and nobody liked him except for the commander. So the new commander brought a new interpreter. So our dynamic is now changed from we lost our commander, now we lost our first sergeant, and we lost our first sergeant because he got moved, and it was it came from it came from like division that they were like, all right, we're moving you into this position, and he didn't want to go, so. It sucked, but then we get this other guy because he needs combat experience. It's like, hold on a second. We lost our company commander, and you're going to just switch our whole command team, which I still to this day, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but that to me sounds like a horrible idea. And then we get one of our interpreters gets gets pushed out, and we get this new guy who nobody likes except for our company commander, but he's like, I like him, so that's all that matters. So we're like, this is this is awful. So... We go through, um, we're supposed to be done October 15th, 2006. That's our last mission. First ID is coming in for us. Yeah, well, for whatever reason, first ID was not ready. I don't know, I, I don't know the details, but they weren't ready, so we had to continue missions. Fast forward to October 20th, uh, one of our vehicles gets hit. We lose uh, the TC, Sergeant Witty. So he's killed. Um, the gunner, his femur is shattered. So he has surgery and everything and 18 months of rehab. That's how bad his leg injury was after this incident. And then a buddy of mine, so he's 19 at the time, he just gets peppered all up his right side. So he has to have exploratory surgery. They go in. So he still has, to this day, still has a huge scar from behind his ear down his neck because they had because he had so much shrapnel and in him um so we're mad we're we're speaking with uh, chris swift who is a combat medic and he's on a second tour in iraq and he's explaining just a consistent series of 
of injuries and losing of uh, his fellow soldiers and of the command structure, which is very critical to your sense of security while you're there because you have to readapt to, is this guy safe and do we trust him as the commander? And, and I think one, one thing interesting I always like to remember, we have the company commander who's an officer, but it's typically the highest ranking NCO that we really trust and look to when we're on the battlefield. So now, you're, so now you, you've just lost another person and you're, you're moving on with your, your second tour. Yeah. And... So we were supposed to be done October 15th. That was supposed to be our last mission, but this is October 20th and we lost a guy. So everybody's now everybody's really pissed. Now we hate first ID because it's first IDs. ID is infantry division. So um, we're blaming first ID because we have to have somebody to blame because we are pissed off and that's what we do. Well, two days later, our battalion XO is killed. Our mission stop right then and there. Like our our battalion commander is like, all right, this is it. You guys need to get your shit together and get out there and do it. You know, you guys, we've given you enough of our time and enough of our people. We're done. So we just kind of hang out, go home. We get home November 7th. And then. Let me interrupt you, Chris. So it's November 7th and we are at the end of 2006. Yep. And you've seen all this. How old are you? Uh, oh, I was 32. You're 32 years old. So, mm-hmm. And you are the leader of the medical. The medics, program. yeah. But I was, I was the senior medic, but I, was, I, go, I went out on, on deployments. Right. Or not on deployments, on uh, missions. So now you're at the end of your, your second mission. Yep. Are, you, are you believing in the mission? It's hard because we ended on a really, really bad note. We were supposed to be done. Like, losing our company commander was like, it, it was so devastating. Not just because of the leadership, but because of who he was and who, what he meant to us. You know, losing a guy, is it's, it's awful, but losing a guy in a command position that was as good and efficient as him, like, that's, that, that's irreplaceable. And so then we were just a lot of angry you're just a lot of angry dudes. Internalized anger. Yep. Yeah. So, so now when you get home, you're, you're 32 years old. Uh, when I ask you about the mission, I mean the overall mission, as the military would have you look at the mission, and you're going home, and, and what's waiting for you there now? Your family waiting for you, back to the bars? Uh, back to the bars. <laughs> back, you know, so in bomb holder, so... So you're back to the beauty speaker. Back, back, back to the effervescent <laughs> life of bomb holder. So... So Bombholder had one of the best steakhouses that we that I've ever eaten at. It's called the Stockrug. And this guy cooked everything on them on an open fire. So I mean, so you know like restaurants that we go here, they're usually if you, even if you go to a nice one, they want you out in about an hour. You know, there if you get your food within 90 minutes, you're doing okay. Because he cooks it all, but it was such good. It was so good. We'd go there every night to eat. But so we get home I have to interrupt you because it just strikes me as funny. You said Baumholter was a place where they sent Ebola victims from North Africa to isolate them from the world. Yes. And here they're bringing you out of Iraq and they're sending you to Baumholter. Well, no, they sent us to Baumholter. And then later on, like towards the uh, the 
2013 when Ebola was going yeah. was going strong. No, no, no. I'm just trying oh, to make yeah. a distinction between here they're sending people there to isolate and get them away, get them away from the rest of the world, and that's pretty much what they're doing with you now is yeah, taking you in a bomb halter and get you away from the rest of the world. Yeah, and um, so like bomb holder, yeah, they have a couple of restaurants, and then they have like the kebab sandwiches. So like a a, a Turkish gyro is what this, and it's like. Those are so good too. Like I miss the stock crook and I miss the and I miss the kebabs. But like so bomb holder, we were we had the post and you go right outside. So I mean it's almost like going outside to West Bend here, like Main Street and West Bend, except not as many bars. There was only like four bars. Like here's there's probably about six or seven. So street vendors. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they had that's where the, we got the sandwiches from. But we go to these bars and then it's like we were fighting everybody. It was like we were fighting the other units, and it was like stupid things too. It was like, oh, then we'd we'd get in it with rear detachment, like guys that were back here while we were deployed. They'd come and they'd say something. And everybody, like I was never really a big fighter and stuff, but when I got back in two thousand seven, we were getting fights every night, every single night, and then we we had to stay. Our, our battalion commander said, nobody's going on leave until December 8th. On December 8th, everybody could go home. That way they'd be home for New Year's Eve and Christmas. He wanted everybody to have that opportunity. And Thanksgiving. No. no. December 8th. Oh, December 8th, not yeah. December 8th. Yeah. yeah, so we get 30 days of leave. So <laughs> we make it through. He says, if anybody gets any alcohol-related incidences, though, you're not going on leave. So we had one guy. So we had one guy the night before we were going on leave. So he got into a fight and he was a mechanic and he cut his hand. So like he cut his hand almost where his thumb is. He cut like I had to put like 16 stitches in. So I'm hammered drunk. And he's like, he's like, Doc, you got to do this for me because if I have to tell somebody I'm not going to get to go on leave. I'm like, all right, let's go. So we go up to the aid station because we have keys to the aid station. All the senior medics do. So we go in there. I clean it up, sew them up. And he's like, we both look at it. He's like, well, it looks good to me. I was like, yep, looks good to me. So he goes, oh, we come back and we get in, we get in this big trouble. I came back a day late because I had a family function. So they let me have an extra day of leave. And I get back and they're like, we came back and this aid station was just, there was shit everywhere. So the mess that I left helping this guy clean up his hand, I didn't clean it up before I left. So when we got back from leave, there was a lot, there was a lot of ass chewings. So I, uh, I was like, man, who would do that? <laughs> I didn't take, I didn't take the blame for it. What, what, what about uh, when you went back and looked at the guy's hand again? Had you stitched his? It was good. The back. <laughs> I was like, man, that's all right. You know, I mean, he had a little scar, but I was like, I put like fourteen stitches in, so I was like, good. What's really interesting to me right now, Chris, is here you've come out of your second tour of, of Iraq. You're you're on leave. You're talking about the the food and the drinks and and that sort of thing. But you've lost a lot of guys along the way here, uh, <sighs> and, and yet, in retrospect. How are you dealing with that on leave? I mean, you're having a good time. So you are, is it fair to say that you're numbed out by now? Oh, yeah. To the war thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Come back and I drink. Like my brother, he told me, he goes, you never, he said, you don't have an off button. Like you start drinking and you, that's it. You know. That's why you're on leave. Yeah. Right. 
So, you know, I'm like, oh, man, I'm just trying to have fun with everybody. But everything that we do that we're our get togethers are either at a restaurant and then it's a bar after, you know. So there's <laughs> everything I did was was. It was just around like alcohol. So it was it was restaurants, bars. You know, that's what I would never be like, hey, let's go to the grocery let's store. Fishing. Yeah, let's go fishing. <laughs> well, if you go fishing, you can take you can take a cooler case of beer. Yeah. So. Um, so so it, it, is it fair to say that I don't want to get too theatrical about this? You're avoiding. Oh my God! All this stuff. Avoiding, deflecting, deflecting denying. Oh, uh, yes. What, what about sleep? When you, oh my God! Well, I drank this so is much. Just on leave. Yeah. yeah. So I had problems with sleep, and I go to see the uh, um the doctors for that, and they prescribe me trazodone. Doesn't work. Ambien sucks. Doesn't work. You know, they're giving me all this stuff. Uh, Again, you're on leave. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you're when they give you this, are they asking you, uh, Chris? Are you drinking alcohol when we give you trazodone? Are they asking you those questions? Yes. Yeah, they are. And you're telling them. Oh, maybe a couple. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you don't tell them everything. But when I got back from my second deployment, I had met a gentleman named Rick Thompson, who was a social worker, and I talked to him for about twenty seconds, and he goes sure you don't need any help you don't need to talk to anybody i was like absolutely not so we had these so when we got back we had to go through the reintegration training we had you know anybody have any issues with sleep you know i was like i i am i need so i realized that i had a problem with sleep but it wasn't because of my drinking it wasn't because of what was going on in my life it was because i just can't sleep i don't know what the problem is so i would go to sleep because i would drink myself to sleep you know, I would just, and then drinking, going to sleep and passing out from alcohol is not what they would call good sleep. Like there's no REM sleep involved in there. You just get up and you just do it again. You start with the Bloody Marys and you just move it on up all the way till, till you're doing shots of tequila at the end of the night. And it's like, oh. Are you carrying booze around with you in the car? And That I didn't do. No. So it, at it, this point, I didn't. Yeah. And the other thing, when, you, when you're doing the drinking and you're not, you're not sleeping, when you had left Iraq, are you expecting this when you get home? Are you expecting not to sleep? Are you expecting that? Or are you looking forward to doing this? At, at um, I'm looking forward to being back with my family and partying. Yeah. You know, that's, I, for lack of a better term, that's what I was looking forward to, seeing everybody and drinking with them. So now how long are you home before they send you on your third? Huh. So this is, this is the part that, that drives me nuts. So in retrospect or at the time? Oh, at the time. So I'm done. I reenlist. I'm going back to Fort Leonard Wood. Oh, so after your second tour, you're actually, you've completed your, your enlistment. Yeah, oh, I, I, let me interrupt you, Chris. We are coming to a significant time in, in the podcast. What I would like to do uh, for our audience sake, yes, we're talking about the military experience, but you have just an enormous amount of difficulty ahead of you that you're not aware of after you will deploy to Iraq and then to Afghanistan and then come home and your issues with alcohol and the troubles you have are going to be significant. So what I would like you to do, because this is so educational and so good, can we stop this episode and invite you to come back for a second episode where we continue on to Iraq, go on to Afghanistan, the difficulties you have there, 
and then come home because I think that it's, it's fair that we spend significant time on when you come home and especially where you are today because we can tell by the sound of your voice yeah. you're, you're in pretty good shape today, but it's a long road to get there. So we, can we invite you back for a second? Definitely. My yeah, pleasure. That yeah, would be our honor to do that because I really don't want to just rush you through Iraq and Afghanistan and come home and yes, you had problems with alcohol and thanks for being on your show. Yeah. I'd rather you come back and let's share this because where you're going and what's going to be valuable to our audience is really after coming back from Afghanistan, which is still ahead of us. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Great. So I would like to thank our audience for joining us. And we are going to invite Chris Swift back for a second episode. And Chris is a combat medic, and he is going to be deploying on his third deployment to Iraq. And then he'll come home and he'll go to Afghanistan. And that's going to be an experience for him. And then he's going to share with us the the extreme difficulties he had with alcohol and jail when he comes back from Afghanistan and how he got himself back onto track and... I believe he said uh, found the purpose in his life because of the programs that he found to work on and that he works on now with the John D. Mason uh, project at the Medical College of Wisconsin. But this has really been an honor. So I invite our guests to come back and we're going to uh, continue on our conversation with Chris Swift, Swifty. And I thank you for joining our podcast, uh, Stigma Free Vet Zone today. And we'd like you to certainly come back and join us uh, next week. But also, it's very important for us that you share your comments because your comments help us to constantly improve the educational quality of our program. And we want to remind everyone that we are funded in part by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And many of us know that, uh, many of us who consider suicide know that we have spent already many years, it can be, in punishing depression before we actually uh, decide to think about suicide or complete suicide. So check out the Charles E. Kubley Foundation.org, and you will find many resources there. And you'll also find more resources on our website at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. And if you are looking for immediate conversation with a real live human voice, contact 1-800-273-8255. That is the Veterans Crisis Line. And after you dial 1-800-273-8255, 8255 press 1. You can also text 838255 to chat and don't hesitate to call these people and I think any veteran that I've ever worked with including myself will tell you that very first step is the most difficult. Take it, get it over with and believe me there's a lot of great things waiting on the other side of that decision. So join us again next week Stigma Free Vet Zone and remember this is educational not stigmatizing. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.